The following is audio from The Refuge Church. Every sermon is an invitation to understand, obey, and enjoy God. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.us. We are heading into 41st week in the, in the book of John. Um, we're in it for the long haul. Um, it's amazing to think that it, we, have, we have gone through... Um, seven days of Jesus's life in, in like a half a year. So if, if Palm Sunday was John 12 and now we're in John, in John 19, um, we have done some real exegetical preaching um, through, through chapters of John. Um, and I, I encourage you, especially as we come up to the end of it, which we will be after Easter, which we head into John um, 20 next week, I really just encourage you guys to um, take time this week, maybe because it's uh, you know Passion Week, and we actually gave some meditations for you as you go through this week. Maybe just let yourself meditate on what we have learned through the Book of John. Um, take your time; let it be something that you don't just set aside in your heart, but you um, you really. Uh, let God bring to mind the lessons we have learned together. Um, and that's one of the themes actually of today that I wanted to talk about. Remembering. Do you remember what God has done for you? Um, not just for you, but do you remember what God just has done? Um, when I was younger, five years old, we would go visit uh, my great-grandma at a nursing home in Tacoma, um, great grandma Lauer. Lauer's my mom's maiden name. And we would go visit her. And when we would go to the nursing home, my memories aren't fond of that. You know, I don't, I don't know if there's, like, no child ever said, like, oh, I can't wait till we go to the nursing home. You know, it was like the same thing for us. We would go and be like, you know, hug your great grandma. And, and you, would, you would be there, but you didn't understand the significance of it. And this is important because now, when I'm, as I'm older, I'm 31 now, and I, I want to put together the story of my life and my family, right? So now when I sit with my grandparents, I say, hey, tell me what your parents were like. You know, tell me, I want to I know my story. You know, at five years old, when I saw my great-grandma, I didn't think, if I don't hear your story, a part of me is missing, right? No, no five-year-old ever thinks that. But you, just, you don't value, really, where you've come from at that age. And, and my question is, do we value where we have come from as Christians? Or do we think that, that to get something good out of a sermon is like a new idea, like a fresh revelation that no one's really ever thought of before? Like, what we are looking for is the ancient truth, right? That's what it says in the Old Testament. It's like, look for the ancient path, right? The good path that has been walked on over and over and over and has been worn down by the saints of old. What were we saying earlier? Like the saints are around the throne worshiping God. I want to know where they walked and I want to walk that path, right? Well, we get to do that today. Again, as we enter the Bible, um, John 19, we get to hear the story of Jesus again and, and, and learn what it means for him to give his life 
for us. There's a creed that we have called the Apostles' Creed that together as it's put together with other creeds and together with the scripture is what we call orthodoxy. And the reason why I'm using that word even though it's kind of big and might be intimidating is because I want you to understand what orthodoxy is, is orthodoxy is what we have believed. And what I mean by that is the one holy Catholic and apostolic church of Jesus Christ, what we have believed, that we get to look back and see, not new ideas that we're coming up with, but, but look and be faithful in walking in that same path. So the Apostles' Creed reads this way. You might, if you're not familiar with reading it yourself, you've sung it with us probably in the song, This I Believe. This is how it goes. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, was born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. And the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Very consolidated. And so what we're going to do today is take one of those sentences where it says, was crucified, dead, and buried... And that is exactly what we're reading today in John 19, verses 16 through 42. We get to see Jesus crucified, died, and buried. And the crazy thing is, like, like this Apostles' Creed isn't long, and we get to take a whole sentence today. So, read with me. We're going to take it in these three parts, starting just going from verse... um, 16 to verse 27. This is how it reads. It says, The soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out from that place of skulls, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, saying, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, divided them in four shares, one for each of them, and the undergarments remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let us not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled. They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. 
Jesus was crucified. It's a crucified is the word used over and over and over in this passage. What do we mean? Well, we're familiar with it on a very um, casual level. Probably some of you wear crosses, have crosses in your home. On churches now, we have crosses on the wall. This instrument of execution we wear now proudly. Well, there was nothing to be proud of in the cross when we come and watch Jesus crucified. Cicero, one of the the famous Roman lawmakers said this. He said, it was the most cruel and shameful of all punishments. Let it never come near the body of a Roman citizen. No, not even near his thoughts or eyes or ears. He said, let it not even enter the, it's so detestable. Let it not even enter the thoughts of a Roman citizen. The cross itself was such a brutal and humiliating display of a criminal that there was no lower, lower way to die. One of the questions that, that if you see your community notes, one, one of the things I want the community groups to talk about this week, and I encourage you to talk with one another about, is this. Why did Jesus choose the lowest way to die, the lowest way to live, instead of the best we had to offer? Right, The best we would have to offer now is like a, maybe it's a dying at home or a hospice or nursing, right? Like that's what we have now. Like, but what would Jesus choose? Well, if it was today, it would be probably the electric chair, right? That would be the way he would choose to go. I read this amazing paper by an African-American theologian called The Cross and the Lynching Tree. Essentially saying when we see a lynching, we see a crucifixion. It's like this crazy, like I, I want us to see what is happening here. Jesus chose this way to die. I think we have so pacified the cross, you know, in the ways that we represent it now that when we think like Jesus would have chosen to be lynched, like when we think of it that way, maybe something in our hearts go, not Jesus. But that, that literally having all power and all authority, which he has said when in conversation with Pilate, he said, I have all authority and all power, everything being given to him, the way he chose to die is the worst we had to offer him. And I want you to think of this as his, this is his choice. This is what he is wanting. Why? Well, think of it this way. And, and as I was I was considering the ways we protect ourselves. I thought, like, how much of our own nature to not be shamed or not not be powerless we see in a simple childhood game of tag, right? Remember playing tag? And you start creating rules to protect yourself. Like, like everyone's running around and you're like, you're wearing out and like, and Susie is just like, like she's about to tag you, and you're like, this is base, right? <laughs> and Susie's like, no, that's not. And you're like, yes, it is. <laughs> like, it just became base. And, and what we do there is, is in one desperate move, we try to protect ourselves, right? 
This is what we do with our power. When you are given power, what you do is you try to bring comfort to yourself and protect yourself. And that's not a bad thing. It's good to protect yourself. But I want you to see what Jesus did with his power was he made himself detestable to us. He, he made himself a shame. And that's what was predicted hundreds of years ahead of time in, in Isaiah 53 where it says, and he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hid their faces. We held him in low esteem. I love this. The that Jesus, the way he chose was that we would want to actually like hide our faces because we wouldn't want to look on him. Guys, there's, there's no shame you have felt, no powerlessness you have felt, no rejection you have felt that, that Jesus did not take on himself. It was his choice. That's what we learn in the crucifixion. We also learn incredible um, things that have, like, that have ver- been verified through history and just practice in, in the Roman act of crucifixion. Um, we know that criminals, were, they carried their own cross to where they would be crucified. And we see Jesus carrying his own cross to be crucified. We also know that criminals at that time would have to wear a placard saying what their crime was. Not too long ago in a Middle Eastern country, I was reading an account of this, um, some people were beheaded. What they had to do is they had to wear a placard saying what they were beheaded for. Right? This is it was still being done. right? This is, and this, this is carried over from not just the Romans, but the, the Persians even started this before them, that they would actually have to say, this is why I am being Condemned, And so with Jesus, what was written on his sign says so much about who he is. Jesus, King of the Jews. And this is really amazing because I think this was Pilate's sort of last, let's stick it to the Jews. Right? Like he, he meant for this to be an insult to the Jewish leaders. And so the Jewish leaders are like, hey, can you, can you write that he just claimed to be king of the Jews and it's like, that just doesn't fit. <laughs> and so he, he writes king of the Jews and this is why he was condemned. But as we go on to, to see what happens next, I want you to see this in, in two expressions of love. This, this global expression of love that is Jesus expressing and then a personal expression of love. And why I want us to see this is because I think sometimes when we see or hear that God loves the world, that God, right, when we hear God so loved the world that he gave his son, it can, we can see this as a general love that maybe we wonder if it is personal or not. Well, it is, it is general and it is big and it is for the world and we see it in, a, in an incredible way in the way that the words were written on the placard that hung above Jesus. This is, this is the first time I've really taken note of this as I've studied is it was written in three languages, right? It says it right here. It was written in, in Hebrew or Jewish Aramaic. It was written in Greek and it was written in Latin, 
there's a lot on this placard. I mean, I think when you watch something like um, Passion of the Christ, it, it, it's just a couple words, right? They don't even get it. Like, I think this, we overlook that Jesus, even in this act, Pilate, not even realizing what he is doing, is saying, this is a savior for the world. Right? Think of the language that was written in Hebrew. At least the, the West, right? This is the language of our religion, right? Latin, it's the language of our law. Greek, it's the language of our philosophy, right? This is Jesus, king over the Jews. Well, he's king over Rome, right? He's king over the Greek, right? All these languages proclaiming, here is your king, your king, naked, stripped, powerless, and yet in some way, claiming power over all the things that are going on. Look at this incredible love of God expressed to us in Christ Jesus. But it's a personal love also. Personal so much so that when he's hanging there to die, he looks at his mother and he says, someone's going to take care of you. John, take care of Take care of my mom. Like I've I've never read a good. I've read a, I've read multiple commentaries on this, and no one has a good explanation for it. And the reason is because they try to make it complex, rather than it being simple and what it is. And it's just as simple as this: is Jesus wants his mother cared for. Simple as that. This personal, intimate love, and and so what I want us to see in this is that that God so loves the world and he loves you. Does Jesus, this one who's crucified, speak authoritatively over Rome? <laughs> Latin, right? Yes. Does he speak authoritatively over the Greeks? Yes. All these people who have come to watch this man die, he is king over all and yet his care is personal. And we see that here expressed. That is what we see in the crucifixion. And it is amazing. Um, Following this, we see a a change happen as he talks about the fulfillment in verses 28. And so read with me. We're going to be in verses 28 and go through uh, verse 37. And this is what it says of his death. It says, later knowing that everything had now been finished so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus says, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus says, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day would be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken, the bodies taken down. And the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, And then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a flow of blood and water. And I love this part. It says, the man who saw it had given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies, so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one 
whom they have pierced. So here we get two more words of Jesus. We hear him say, I am thirsty, and we hear him say, it is finished. What do these mean? Again, it's pretty simple. I am thirsty. We see in this the, the body of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus. Him simply saying, I feel I'm drained. I'm thirsty. We get this interaction, which gives context to it in John 4, which if you've been with us for over a year, you would have heard us preach on John 4, where he sits by a well in the middle of a day with a woman who's an outcast from her community. We just know her as the Samaritan woman. And he says to her, I'm thirsty. Will you give me a drink of water? And giving her power in the situation. Isn't this amazing? Giving this woman who's an outcast from her community, he gives her power and says, will you give me a drink of water? And she's like, you didn't bring your own bucket? <laughs> He's like, no, I didn't. I need you. I need, to be, I need to be in a relationship with you for you to give me your water. And so in this same way, we learn of a Jesus who expresses his need as he's meeting the needs of the world. Think of infant Jesus who needed to be cared for. Helpless baby Jesus who had no power but was exposed and needy. Think of Jesus as he grew, who knew to pray for his daily bread because he needed that provided for him. Jesus who makes himself vulnerable and makes himself available. I'm thirsty. Guys, it's amazing. You and I, I think, oftentimes we try to put our best foot forward. Like when we get in a relationship with somebody or we meet somebody for the first time, what we're thinking is what's the power equivalent, right? We're like, how do I show myself as being cool so they don't think I'm weird like I really am? And so, you know, (laughs) so I'm going to say certain things and then I'm going to, right? Like what's that power equivalent? Well, Jesus made himself vulnerable and available in that way. He built a bridge through his own body, I need, I thirst. It's incredible. Then he goes on, we see Jesus fully man, a body who's weak, feels every thorn pressing into his brow, crucified, and now we hear him say, it is finished. This is incredible, guys. This is, this is one of the most fun parts uh, that we get to talk about today. It is finished, is one word. It's the word to telestai. Could be butchering that. Um, it's not three words like we see here. It is finished. To telestai is just one word, and it is a simple word. It's not a spiritual word. It's not a word that they would, you know, say in in their, you know, their sacrifice rituals. It was simply a word that if a if a servant had done something his master had asked him to do, he would come and he would just say to telestai. He would say it is completely. Done. Everything you asked for. It's the same concept if you have an artist that's been working on a project, someone who's writing a book or someone who's making a painting, and they have labored over this. You know, every stroke that they make, incomplete, but making a complete work, and finally the painting is done, and they hold it up, and they're like, to tell us that. You see it. 
in its fullest form. And that is what Jesus is saying. Everything, everything that God expressed and shown in the Old Testament through prophecies and, and showing himself, all of this was making this, this painting, right? This portrait that we fully see in the person of Jesus. And so Jesus says, it's complete to telestai. Do we see the fullness of God in the person of Jesus hanging on the cross? Do we see the tetelestai? Are we still looking for something else? You know, I think sometimes, like going back to the example I started with, right? I think so many of us don't even know our history. I think, especially in the American culture, we don't do a good job with that. Like if you ask me, um, my great-grandparents' names, I don't know them. Um, I know that I am Dutch, German, and a wee bit of English, I think. And, you know, and, but I'm, we're not like, we, we never like went to Germany to see where we were from. or Like that's, and so in, in some ways, I'm like, <laughs> who I am, there's a lot of my story I don't know. Um, and neither is my family tree finished with me. We know that because my brother already has a son. His name's Owen. And so Fredericks will continue. Um, <laughs> you know, takes the pressure off of me. Um, but what we see in Jesus is the work of God from when he said, let there be light. Right? When he shaped Adam, he said, let us make man in our image. And, and man and woman were made, right? And he breathed life into them. And they were alive. Filled. They weren't, they weren't complete. They were still needing completion as the story went on, right? And the story is told that, that one would come. And then John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the tetelestai. (laughs) Behold the one whose sin would be not just covered, like we see in the strokes of God in the Old Testament as we see the Passover lamb getting offered. But that's not complete. That's not the fullness. But we see the fullness in the person of Jesus Christ. And we read this in Hebrews 9. Where it says this. It said, For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. Right? Not complete, not full. No, he didn't do that. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in the presence of God. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again and again the way priests would. Enter the most holy place. Otherwise, Christ would have to suffer time and time again since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once and for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by sacrificing himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many to Telestai. It is finished. What we have looked for and longed for is finally complete in the person of Jesus. Is that who you see when you see Jesus? 
on the cross? Do you see fullness? Are you still looking for more? As we approach the burial of Jesus, I think we, we find our opportunity to participate. You know, when we see Jesus being crucified, when we see him die, we just watch. We can do nothing. We can watch. But we meet two men in the burial story of Jesus that are ready. They saw that the fullness of time and the fulfillment of time was go time. Let me tell you their story. It says in John 19, starting in verse 38, it says, Later Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took away the body. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 70 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and the strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. What do we see here? Well, we see two people who have lived in secret, Joseph and Nicodemus. Um, We know Joseph lived in, in a secret faith because it says it right here. He followed Jesus, but he followed him at a distance. So while he saw the disciples kind of making fools of themselves, like, yeah, we're with you, Jesus. Ah, right? Like, though they, while they watched that, they heard Jesus' words, and they took the words of Jesus seriously. They heard Jesus say that he would die, and they believed it, and they prepared for it, because you don't just come up with 70 pounds of spices overnight. Right? I want you to think to your spice cabinet, and think of, like, how much your pepper weighs. Think of 70 pounds of that, okay? Like, we're talking about a lot of spices, and they wrap them in this. Like, he was probably the size of a refrigerator by the time they were done wrapping, right? They were, they were ready for the death of Jesus, and, and when he died and everyone else scatters, they went public with their faith. And this is so cool. This is so cool. Why? Well, because I think a lot of us live at least parts of our life in secret. That we keep parts of our life the secret faith. We're like, we come to church on Sundays and maybe, maybe we're like learning to raise our hands. Like we're going to sing a song later that says, and I stand with arms lifted high. I can't remember the arms high and wide abandoned. And, uh, yep. You know that song, um, and, and we're like we're learning, we're learning to worship. We're learning to to live publicly our faith, right? Well, my my prayer is that Easter will be a time this year that we become like Joseph and Nicodemus, right? Joseph of Arimathea, who lived in secret, Jesus dies shamefully. And he immediately goes to the leader of the land and says, give me his body. Think of that courage. 
Think of the guts of that guy to go and be like, I want him. And he is ready. He's like, we already got 75 pounds. And Joseph Murphy, a wealthy man, has bought. This is the first time I've noticed this. Where is the garden? Do you guys read this here? It says, um, uh, 41, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. That means it's right there. Like in the shadow of the cross is a garden and in the garden is a tomb. And Joseph, I think, goes, I want to buy that. But Joseph, being a wealthy man, would not have, would not have a burial place for his family in the shadow of a place they crucify people. Like what wealthy family would go like, like, hey, I want to buy a plot of ground, like, inside of a penitentiary. And so we can go, that's where we'll visit our, you know, we'll present flowers for our relatives. Like, no, that's, that's not what happened. He bought this new grave. No one's ever been in there. So when Jesus dies, he can immediately entomb Jesus. That's what we get from the story, right? And they are ready. Nicodemus and Joseph, while the disciples were still figuring out like what they're going to do and what they figured out is it probably works best for our interest just to abandon Jesus. Joseph and Nicodemus are there ready to receive Jesus. Right? This is amazing. And so what's this invitation to us? Maybe you've seen people live very publicly their faith. <laughs> Maybe because they're much more extroverted than you are, right? Or, or whatever it is. And you might feel like somebody who's lived in secret. And then you see an opportunity. Let Easter be your opportunity. Right? Let this season be your opportunity. To be a Nicodemus, to be a Joseph who goes. Maybe it's going to your boss and being like, <laughs> your pilot, whatever, whoever pilot is in your life. It's being like, I serve the one who was crucified. He was risen with power. That's where I stand. What does it look like for you to be unashamed of the gospel? And what I want to tell you is this, is that, that some of us don't realize the immense power, the immense wealth we have because we have not started living unashamed yet. Um, many of us, have heard more gospel truth than the early church who lit the world on fire with their faith, right? We see a group of 120 people, right? You enter into Acts, 120 people who are just praying and they have, they have still this story that's getting completed, a story that we know and they're like, God, just use us. And they went out and they started by the power of the Spirit proclaiming wholeheartedly, right? So crazy. People are like, I think they're drunk, right? That, that they, were, they were just so adamant about talking about Jesus. And, and the world changed because of that. Some of you will discover the wealth that God has placed in you already when you start speaking about him. You'll start discovering, oh my gosh, I, look at what I know. Look at what's coming out of me. Guys, that's my prayer for us this Easter. And as we prepare our hearts this week, and I encourage you to take the sheet of verses and read those, meditate on those this week as you prepare your heart for Good Friday, for Easter morning, and say, God, make me unashamed this Easter season. May you look back on Easter 2017 and be like, that's when I started talking. That'd be so good. Pray with me.
God, thank you. Thank you so much. When we see Jesus and him taking the, the lower place, there's no level of grief or shame or feeling unknown that we can go to that that you did not fully feel in Jesus but fully offer yourself to us in also God I pray that that there will be a spark in some of our hearts um, that lights a fire today that that um, as we even read the Easter the the Passion Week meditations that we just want to start sharing with some people that Maybe it just says, I just read this morning in the book of John, and it was amazing. Let me tell you about it. And I pray that those words, as they come out of our mouth, both will fill us with tremendous happiness, but also start changing the world around us as we speak speak, um, boldly in your name. God, we love you. Give our hearts courage to love you more. We pray this very day in Jesus' name, amen.